0: Today's show is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free by visiting ZipRecruiter.com slash real. Today's show is also sponsored by Stamps.com. Get your four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale by going to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter our code LASTS. That's Stamps.com, promo code LASTS. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Real Life Podcast, where we talk about exactly that every single week. Real life which means some episodes might be about a fight we just had, some episodes might be about potty training since we have two toddlers, and some might be about eschatological realism because I love thinking and talking about deep theological things. And maybe we'll talk about all three of those in one episode. But we hope the show feels like hanging out in our living room with us, drinking a cup of coffee as we discuss faith and family and culture and Jesus. Me and my lovely wife, Alyssa, are your hosts, and don't hesitate to hit us up or reach out on social media to say hi or comment on this week's episode. Enjoy! Chapter 3, Music from Chaos Orison Martin was a writer in the late 1800s. For one particular writing project, he set out to discover and interview a giant of his day and ask the secret behind his impact on the world. One of Martin's first questions was about this remarkable man's, quote, untiring energy and phenomenal endurance. The response? This man had worked an average of 20 hours per day for the past 15 years straight, This meant he had not just been awake for 20 hours straight, which in itself would have been brutal, but he had averaged 20 hours a day working for 15 years. In fact, he worked so much that he would joke that even though he was 47 years old at the time of those comments, he was more like 82 years old, since if you calculated how many 8-hour workdays he fit into his 20-hour workdays, it would have made him about that age. It's not a coincidence that this person thought work and productivity were so important that he made it one of his missions to kill the thing that most stood in his way, sleep. He hated sleep. He even called it a, quote, heritage from our cave days. It was as if he just couldn't believe society hadn't progressed past this wasteful activity. Who was this person? This man who hated sleep and was an obscene workaholic, almost certainly to the extreme detriment of his health, Well, the very person who made it his mission to create and invent things that would allow him to cheat the very thing he hated, Thomas Edison. The year? It was 1879, the year our culture made a trade-off we haven't fully reckoned with, the light bulb. Something Edison firmly believed could take us out of those cave days, he said, even going so far to remark how he believed artificial light seemed to make people more intelligent. He's quoted as telling this story. When I went through Switzerland in a motor car so that I could visit little towns and villages, I noted the effect of artificial light on the inhabitants. Where water power and electric light had been developed, everyone seemed normally intelligent. Where these appliances did not exist and the natives went to bed with the chickens, staying there until daylight, they were far less intelligent. Ah, yes, that's it. When your light bulb is on, you must be a smarter person. In fact, I wonder if that's where we got the funny cultural symbol of a light bulb over someone's head when they have a good or big idea. In fact, it is. Many photographs were taken of Edison holding a light bulb right near his head. And over time, instead of saying someone was smart or inventive, we started saying they were bright. It's a funny thing how belief gets born into the world. We create what we want to see. We are motivated by our vision for the world. See, Edison hated sleep, so he invented something that could help him cheat it, and it forever altered how we structure life. Before Edison, when the sun set, your main activity concluded for the day. After Edison, that was the moment it was starting. Now, not only does today's research completely contradict Edison's view of sleep, but it's no coincidence that the invention he is most famous for is actually the single most responsible device for sleep disruption and quality for the past 130 years. We have used it to cheat ourselves out of the rest we need as we hustle and push against limits. It's clear that we need to sleep. We start short-circuiting and breaking down if we don't. When we don't get adequate sleep, we increase our dementia risk by 33%, and the risk is much higher for depression and anxiety and loss of memory. We literally lose years off of our lives. They say chronic sleep deprivation carves three to five years off the age of our brains. We're almost 50% more likely to develop heart disease, three times more likely to catch a cold, and 50% more likely to be obese, and our body starts having crazy hormonal imbalances, which affects our cravings, appetites, and more. We want to squeeze more and more out of less and less, so we continue to cheat it in other ways too, including with the soil that grows our food. Our fertilizing techniques have actually changed the composition of soil as we once knew it, leading to the law of diminishing returns. Most farmland is no longer allowed to recover and the nutrients that reset it are gone. So what's our solution for fixing the problem? We just use more fertilizer. Our modus operandi is to push the limits as far as they can go. And when we hit a wall, we find some chemical or drug to step in and help us artificially push past it. Both the soil and our bodies get exhausted. Literally, we deplete the life from them. The answer to this is crop rotation, where we steadily rotate certain patches of agriculture in a cadence of work and rest. Yet economically, that is difficult for farmers, so some decide to squeeze out a few more dollars in the short term by using all the fields all the time. Sounds a lot like our bodies, right? Made for a balance of work and rest, but powered by the god of economics, we would rather push the limits to extract some cash. A cycle of cheating the darkness and the fields and our bodies because we want to get there faster. A cycle of extortion because we want more out of something than they're willing or able to give. And of playing God because God doesn't have limits, but humans do, and we'd much rather be the former. But what if in trying to be God, we've forgotten how to be human, to actually live within our limits, to believe there's rhythm in things that can make us more whole again, To believe things like silence are a gift, that Sabbath is a gift, and that obscurity, the place of being unknown and not famous, which is the telos for most of us, isn't a curse but an enormous gift. Because, see, we're scrambling, we're tired, we're burned out. We're creatures of chaos by natures of the curse, where sin flooded into God's holy and good creation and is decreating and unraveling all that is good and holy. And we are still decreating ourselves and our world today. Yet we know we were born as creatures of meaning by nature of the creation account. We feel it in our bones. We see it in our lives, and it plays out in our minds, marriages, jobs, and hearts. It's why we somehow can work 60 hours a week at our job, but when our spouse asks for a date night an hour every Monday, we say we don't have time or that it's too much. It's why we press a bunch of buttons on a computer for work all week and somehow get to Friday and wonder, what even did I do all week? What did I accomplish? It's why we feel like there is this external force in the world just dragging us through our days and our responsibilities and our priorities. And we feel taken prisoner by the God of urgency and hurrying and chaos. But you know what? Chaos isn't new. It was actually here first. In the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, paraphrase. The earth was waste and void. Darkness covered the abyss and a mighty wind was blowing over the surface of the waters. Those words, in the beginning, the earth was Tohu Vabohu in Hebrew. Guess what Tohu can be translated as? Chaos. The earth was chaos and desolation. Darkness covered the abyss and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's no secret in ancient Jewish culture that water represented primordial forces of evil and darkness and chaos. So the stage set in the first page of scripture is that of chaos and darkness. Yet we find the spirit there, hovering over the water in the darkness. The only other place we find the word translated as hovering like we see here in the scriptures is in Deuteronomy 32.11, where it describes a mother bird flapping and beating her wings over her babies, covering them and encouraging them to fly. See, God isn't scared of chaos in our lives, just like we see in Genesis. He won't disappear. He's not distant, but he does encourage us to fly. So what's the antidote to chaos? To the splintering and fracturing of all things? It's shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. But when we say the word peace in English, some of us think of the 70s psychedelic hippie peace, and that's not what shalom means. In fact, every letter in Hebrew that makes up the word peace is trying to tell us something. But let's break down those three letters, because in Hebrew, each letter can have its own meaning. And also keep in mind, Hebrew is read from right to left. Mem equals water and chaos. Lamed equals the staff or authority. And shin can mean teeth or destroy or consume. True shalom carries weight. It means, if you put all those together, to have the teeth to destroy the authority of chaos. And even better, guess what Jerusalem means? It's a combination of two words, yeru and shalom. And what yeru can be translated as, you will see. So Jerusalem means you will see the mouth of peace destroy the authority of chaos. It's the city where peace and blessing and fullness reigns where darkness is cast out, light is shining. And in some ways, I think Jerusalem is a metaphor or destination for us all. It's not a coincidence that at the very end of Scripture is the place God designed to be the finish line of our story, where all things are made new. It's called New Jerusalem. All of us are pilgrims on this journey. We're either walking towards chaos or putting one foot in front of the other on our long and arduous journey towards the city of peace and shalom. And that's the new Jerusalem. Hey guys, I want to take a quick break. I want to speak sponsors at a stamps.com. I'm one of the longest standing sponsors on this show because I love stamps.com and have used them for years even before they sponsored the show. So it's a perfect fit and it really fun for me. Now, if you don't know, Postage rates always are going up, but Stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. You can save five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates and just crazy, crazy savings. And what they do is they basically bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. So whether you're a small office sending invoices, online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages, Stamps.com can handle it with ease. You just print off Any postage, any letter for any package, any class, it's amazing. And you can just put it right out in your mailbox. Um, And with stamps.com, you get discounted postage rates that you can't even get at the post office. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters It's a no-brainer, guys. saves you time and money. Um, I've used Stamps for years. I don't know if people remember when I used to ship out posters myself from our living room. Uh, That was all through Stamps.com. So we love it. Now, right now, you guys can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with now any long-term commitment. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in LASTS. That's Stamps.com and enter LASTS. The End of Chaos. I remember the fiery, visceral hurt like it was yesterday, but it wasn't yesterday. It was a decade ago, and I was in pain, not from a physical accident, but from my life choices. My first serious girlfriend had broken up with me, the one I thought I was going to marry, and since I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life except marry her, I felt lost, without direction, like I was pushed into a coffin and buried underground alive, chest beating but with no room to breathe or go anywhere that's when I had the first thought of ending it. Only people who have been there understand that darkness, but there is a point at which emotional and mental pain can reach such extreme levels that it enters into your physical body so you physically feel sick. It feels like acid in your soul. It burns in a deep way. So you just want it to end. And so that's why I remember sleeping a lot, wanting to do nothing but sleep during the day, skipping my classes, missing important meetings or deadlines, because the only time relief came was when my eyes were closed. That's the only time the chaos stopped. Those primordial waters that were rushing and tossing and churning about in the very first few sentences of Genesis seemed to be in my heart as well. Just 12 months earlier, I had a profound encounter with Jesus in my dorm room in my little beachside university in San Diego, but I didn't feel like much was changing. That only elevated the chaotic feeling. I would wonder, did I do this wrong? Did I miss a step? I'd thought that when I started to follow Jesus, things were supposed to get better. And if that was true, why was it getting worse? Why did it hurt more instead of less? Maybe it's because when we're dead, we can't feel anything. But once we're alive, that means our senses are too. Can a dead person feel chaos? If a corpse is caught up in a tornado, is that body really affected? It's only when we're alive that we can actually get scared when we see what's brewing. Or maybe it's because I now was tasked with the job of turning around a freight train that had been carrying momentum for almost two decades of self-centered decisions about what I wanted, what felt best, what was best for me. I thought that following Jesus would make things easier, and I thought my problems would disappear. See, I'm the type of person who, when I go towards something or make a change, I go all in. And that meant I was reading three books a week on theology, going to two prayer groups and Sunday services each, and participating in 19 accountability groups. Okay, that last one's an exaggeration. But it wasn't long before I thought, is this it? I thought there was more. It took me years to realize all I'd done was change the clothes on my problems. They were still the same problems. I was still as disintegrated as ever. My life was still as disconnected as ever. I never actually let what I believed enter into my normal daily habits or rituals, which is where change, growth, joy, and meaning actually happen. I was afraid to build my beliefs and good morals on a foundation of chaos. And I started to do a bunch of Christian things, but I was not addressing the underlying anchoring every human needs to flourish. Here's another way to put it. The big difference between chaos and shalom is rhythm. Chaos is unpredictable, and it's unrhythmic by nature. It has no set cadence. But shalom is more like a dance that depends, actually, on the rhythm in the music. Have you ever stopped and wondered what makes music, music? If I take a spoon and hit my bowl with it, that's not music. But if I hit my bowl with it once, then hit it again, and then again in timed increments, then that's music. The most fundamental building block to music is rhythm. Rhythm is a funny thing, if you think about it. It's the force that keeps the music going forward, but it's also something that the music keeps coming back to. Rhythm is everything. Have you ever heard someone learn to play a new instrument? Usually they produce a collection of random notes that sound terrible. The noise is grating and it hurts your ears, and there are sounds, but there are no rhythms. So the first step is creating a tempo, learning timing. I still remember guys, I uh, learned to play the trombone in middle school, but I was also really short so I couldn't reach that last note. So I'd have to use my feet to actually play those notes. And I love my mom for listening to that chaos, not rhythm. in all those days I was practicing (laughs) in my bedroom. It reminds me of those students at high school dances whose moves made me think, what on earth are you doing right now? The irony is that dancing is self-expression. You can do whatever you want and that there is freedom in dancing, but to a point. Because you still have to submit to the rhythm, or your moves look weird, haphazard, and cringeworthy. You have to feel the beat and find yourself in the cadence. What if our lives are like that? What if we are dancing through life believing we're moving to a smooth rhythm when we're actually out of sync with the beat, missing steps, and bumbling along with no recognizable form? We're telling everyone how free we are, but no sane person would look at our dancing and call it beautiful. It looks and feels off. And we all know it when we do it ourselves. We're not following the rhythm of the music around us. So how do we find that rhythm? How do we form our dance around the steady, purposeful tempo that's in the music? Hey guys, wanna take a quick break to tell you about one of this week's sponsors. You guys know we love ZipRecruiter. I've told you about it before. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz is a fun little story as the director of coffee, which I wish I had that name and title. I'm going to get business cards that say that anyways. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, and he was having trouble finding qualified candidates. So he switched to ZipRecruiter and they helped him out. Now, if you don't know, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. So it's basically this technology that identifies people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates really fast. It's really, really cool. And the rating feature allows you to filter applicants so you can focus on the best ones, the most relevant ones. and so. Uh, uh, back to that story with Dylan, he found a candidate in just a couple days. And so it's cool because four out of five employers who actually post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Super awesome and efficient for your business. I know it's really helpful for us. So see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. So try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash real. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash real, R-E-A-L, ZipRecruiter.com slash real. The song in the other room. One of the more magical experiences Alyssa and I have ever had was going to an Adele concert. A friend surprised us with tickets and that gift allowed us to experience Adele performing live and without a lot of production or background music. She stood in front of a crowd of 20,000 people and sang for two hours in what was one of the most beautiful displays of human power and creativity we had ever seen. I remember even tearing up a few times. Not at the emotion in the words, but just at the sheer power and beauty inherent in the sound. It's not science, you can't measure it, but when you hear it, you just know. Her voice was compelling, powerful, and alluring. At one point, I ran out to the car, and on the way back, I could hear her singing in the lobby and corridor of the stadium. But it was that familiar yet fuzzy and muffled sound when you're far away. And it drew me in. There's something about good music that makes you want to go to it to find it, to seek it out. As with a beacon or a lighthouse on a cliff, you head towards the beauty. I think God gave each of us a desire for rhythm in the music he creates. We hear a song in the other room. We hear the hum of meaning as it calls us and we try to ignore it, but we can't. The best response is to go hunting for it, chase it. And when it starts getting louder, we know we're getting closer to where God is playing a symphony of shalom. It's our job to listen and follow. And the cool part about our walk with Jesus is, the closer we actually get to him, the clearer the music becomes. And the clearer it becomes, the better you can dance to it. I'm reminded of Aslan's music in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, where he says, "...in the darkness something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself." There were no words, there was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful, Diggory could hardly bear it. Have you ever heard music so beautiful you could hardly bear to listen to it? That's the music God is playing and he's inviting us to dance to it. But here's the thing, we have to acknowledge about dancing before we can keep moving forward on this journey together. Learning to dance takes work. Learning to dance may feel clumsy at first, and practice is necessary if you're going to be able to dance well. You may step on someone else's toes, you may even step on your own. You'll be counting the steps, and that's expected. And that's what leaning into new practices will feel like. The rest of this book is me telling my story of learning those steps new formations, new ways to live, new steps to life, to genuine humanness, to flourishing. And we have to be honest with ourselves learning to dance is hard. It takes practice, a lot of it. It takes dedication to show up at the same time and same place every week. To do it just one more time, knowing that you'll learn to dance simply by practicing. But you'll get to a place sooner or later where you stop looking down at your feet and you start looking up into the eyes of Jesus as you walk through life with him in a graceful rhythm.